If you have your Bible today, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We so often focus on the first half, the first third of Luke, chapter 2, during the holiday season. We call that the Christmas story, uh, found in verses 1 through 20, and that's our focus, and that's a good focus. There's nothing wrong, of course, with focusing on the Luke 2 Christmas story but I wonder how many of us know what happens next. Uh, the Christmas story really takes up less than half of Luke chapter 2. There is still much in that chapter to study. And I want us to look at least as far as we can get this morning. We can't cover all of Luke chapter 2. But I want you to see what happens in the first six weeks of the life of Christ as it's recorded in Luke chapter 2. So we'll begin with verse 21. Well, no, we won't. Let's go back to verse 20. Let's start with the Christmas story. I want to make sure you understand the context. Luke 2.20 says, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as had been told. And so the shepherds visit the baby Jesus they are amazed, they marvel, they go and they tell the story, they're rejoicing that Jesus has been born, now what's next? Look at verse 21. It says, when the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. Now it says eight days later that Jesus was circumcised. What's that all about? Well, the Jewish people always, on the eighth day, after a baby boy was born, that boy was circumcised. This was instructed in Genesis 17 too. It says, on the eighth day, circumcise the boys. And they took this so seriously at this point in history that even if the eighth day, uh, even if it were a Sabbath day, they would perform the circumcision. And so Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, why was it important that Jesus went through this, uh, this ritual? This ritual really stood for, it reminded them of the covenant between God and Abraham. And we could go back and spend some time looking through that. But why was it that Jesus underwent this same ritual? Well, we have to remember that Jesus, and this is such an important lesson, Jesus didn't just come to die for us, but Jesus also came to live for us. And Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. He was obedient to every requirement in the Old Testament, exactly as it was stated, Jesus came to live a life of obedience for us. And so the Old Testament required that he be circumcised on the eighth day, and he was. Now it says here that when he was circumcised, then he was given the name Jesus. Now Jewish boys were officially named at, at their circumcision. They would be called by their name, I'm sure, before the eighth day. But on the eighth day, on the day of circumcision, that's when they were officially named. Jesus was named Jesus. And this was an instruction given by the angel to Joseph even before 
Jesus was conceived. And the word Jesus, it really comes from two Hebrew words. It comes from Yahweh, which is the proper name of God in the Old Testament. And it comes from the Hebrew word that means helper or deliverer. And so Jesus means God helps us. God delivers us. God saves us. And that's the name. That's the name Jesus. Look at verse 22. It says, and when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And they also offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So it says at the the point of purification for Mary... Mary had given birth to a child, and in those days, their, underway, their way of understanding things, what had been instructed to them in the Old Testament, is that when a woman gave birth to a son, that there was 40 days of purification. So on day 40, she would go to the temple, and they would offer a sacrifice for her purification. So now Jesus is how old? About six weeks old. It says that when they got there, they offered an offering of two turtle doves. Now, this is interesting because the command, the original command in the Old Testament was that you would offer a lamb and one turtle dove. But there was an exception given in the book of Leviticus chapter 12 that if you were uh, experiencing extreme poverty, then you could do something different. You could give two turtle doves instead of a lamb and a turtle dove. Well, in this case, what do they give? They give two turtle doves. What does that tell us about Joseph and Mary? It tells us that they were very poor. They were impoverished to an extreme degree. And not only did they not have much money, any resources, but they didn't even have a support system around them that could help them with something like this. This was a very important thing. But when they got to the temple, they had to choose the exception. They had to offer two turtle doves instead of the normal prescribed offering, which was a lamb and a turtle dove. Now, what does that tell us? What does that tell us that the Savior of the world, the Son of God, was born to a mother and a family that was so impoverished? Well, it tells us a few things. First of all, it reminds us that poverty is not a sin. If you're poor today, that's not a sin. It's not necessarily the result of a sin. It also tells us that poverty is not an expression of God's disapproval. This, this is the number one family. This is the most highly esteemed family in history, yet they were a family that knew poverty. It also tells us that poverty does not prevent a person from worshiping God. Just because they were poor doesn't mean that they couldn't come and alongside everybody else worship God. God calls all people to worship him. And it tells us that poverty is a cross that God entrusts to some people for a time. There just may be a time that God will allow us to go through poverty in order to teach us something or to use us in some special way. And that was the case for for Joseph and Mary. We need to make sure we never look down on someone because they are poor. Because the greatest family, the most esteemed family in history was the family that suffered from poverty. 
Look at verse 25. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. What does it mean that this man, Simeon, older man, there in the temple, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit was on him? It means that he was guided by the Holy Spirit. He's going to recognize Jesus when Jesus is brought into the temple. How does he recognize him? The Holy Spirit is guiding Simeon. Verses 27 and 28, guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, we'll read the next verses in a moment. You know, if you, if you remember to the Christmas story, there the angels announced Jesus to the shepherds. Now we have the Holy Spirit announcing the presence of Jesus to Simeon. Hold on to that because we'll see a third part to that in just a moment. So Simeon recognizes, because he's guided by the Holy Spirit, he recognizes that this baby is Jesus, that this baby is the Messiah. In fact, the name Jesus, you may not know this, but it was a fairly common name. It would be like calling someone Scott today. There are a lot of Scots here, I imagine, this morning. Jesus was a fairly common name. So just because the parent said, this is Jesus, wouldn't have set off alarm bells. But the Holy Spirit led Simeon and he recognized that this isn't just another Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. And so what, what happens? Verses 29 and 30, now... Master, this is, these are the words of Simeon. He's praying, he's calling out to God. He says, now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Can you imagine if you waited your entire life to see one thing, to do one thing, to be a part, to experience just one thing, and now you're in your old age. It's not happened year after year, decade after decade, but finally it happens, and that's where Simeon was. Finally, he had seen, he had seen the Messiah, and so he praises the Lord, and it's interesting. He says, now you can dismiss your servant. What he says is, okay, I'm ready to die. This is the pinnacle. This is what I live for. I've seen Jesus. I've seen the Messiah. This is the ultimate fulfillment. Uh, this Simeon is really a picture here of what every Christian should long for. We should all have a longing to see Jesus. In fact, the Bible uh, says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and other places that a Christian today should have such a desire, such a longing for the return of Christ. We should look forward to that day with great anticipation. We, like Simeon, should have a longing to see Jesus. And we, like Simeon, should understand that Jesus is the only and the ultimate sacrifice of all of our desires. We may not recognize it, but everything we really want, need in life, the things that motivate us, the things that drive us, the ultimate satisfaction of those things will be found in Jesus. Look at verse 31. 31 and 32, you have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, Simeon is still talking, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Now this is the gospel. He says, in front of everybody, 
you have sent the Messiah to be a blessing to everybody. What he means by prepared in front of everybody is that there had been years and years of prophecy and now the prophecy has been fulfilled. It's fulfilled in public and now Jesus will be a blessing not just to the, to the Jewish people but to all the world, but to all the world. Let's skip down to verse 36. 36 and 37, there was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phaniel of the tribe of Asher, and she was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple serving God day and night with fasting and with prayers. So what do we know about this woman named Anna? First of all, we know that she was a prophetess. That means she proclaimed, publicly proclaimed God's word. We also know she was a faithful woman because it says here that she served in the temple night and day, every day, without fail. She was a faithful woman. We also know that she was a praying woman because it says that she prayed with fastings and with prayers. She was a praying woman. And we know that she was an old woman. And that'll be important when we get a little further in the sermon. She was a very old woman, at least by their standards. She was 84 years old and maybe 105 years old. There's really two ways to figure up her age if you look back at uh, verse 37. And so she's at least 84, or maybe she was 84, maybe it's been 84 years since her husband died. We, we're not exactly sure, but she's an old woman. In those days, life expectancy would have been half of that, and so she is an old woman. Look at verse 38. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him, about Jesus, to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So the angels announced the coming of Jesus to the shepherds. The Holy Spirit announced and identified Jesus to Simeon. And now Anna is announcing and proclaiming the coming of Jesus to everybody that will listen to her. She's just telling everybody, the Bible says. Now, I think what we see here, we'll pause right there. We'll stop right there with our, with our work through of Luke chapter 2. Uh, but what I think we see here is, is just a beautiful picture. Th this, of course, is a story about Jesus, but I think there's another picture in these verses that, that can help us, a beautiful picture. In these verses, we see sketches of Simeon and Anna that show them living full lives, faithful to the finish. Did you hear that? So here we see a picture, both in Anna and in Simeon, both very near the end of their earthly lives, we see a picture of these two people living full lives and faithful lives. You've heard the saying before that it's not how you start, it's how you finish, right? Well, Simeon and Anna finished well. That's what we see here. Two people who finish well. And these aren't, of course, the only people uh, in the Bible who finished well. We looked just a few weeks ago uh, as we studied 2 Timothy 4, 7, where the Apostle Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul said, I fought the good fight, I was committed to the right things. And then he says, I finished the race and I've kept the faith. Paul says, I finished well. 
I finished well. So looking back at Simeon and Anna, uh, what we read in Luke 2 is likely the very last episode in their lives. They are advanced in years. How would we describe Simeon and Anna in these last days, in this last picture? Well, I think if we look back, we would describe them as delighted. They were delighted. They were, they were overflowing with joy because they saw Jesus. I think we could describe them as satisfied, fully satisfied. In fact, Simeon said, I'm ready to die now because I am fully satisfied. And if we look at Simeon and Anna in this last picture of life, we see that they are faithful at the finish. I wonder if there were some other stories in their lives, in their long lives. I wonder if there were stories of events, accomplishments, maybe some disappointments. I wonder if Anna and Simeon could tell stories of victories and defeats. I'm certain they could. But none of that seems to matter in Luke chapter 2. All that matters is that they finished faithful. I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture. I think it's a rare thing. Most people don't finish faithful. Do you know that? Even in our church, did you know that over half of the formal members of First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches never darkened the door of a church in all of 2023. Now those people were excited when they joined. They were excited when they were baptized. They were, uh, they were thrilled about their relationship with God. But now three years later, 15 years later, 40 years later, over half of them haven't even darkened the doors of the church in the last year. Now, certainly there are some reasons, some medical reasons for some of those, but for the vast majority of them, they're just simply not walking faithfully with the Lord. This picture of people finishing faithful is a rare picture. Statistically, if I look out over our church at all those this morning who are under the age of 50, I think of the age of 50 as young and old. I used to think it was 40. I actually used to think it was 30. <laughs> but if I look out across our church at all the people here under the age of 50, let me just tell you statistically, I hope our church is doing a better job than a lot of churches. And I hope this isn't exactly true of our church. But just statistically, if you're under the age of 50, you will not make it to the end that Simeon Simeon and Anna made it to. Statistically, most of you will not finish faithful. Well, what about those of us who are old, gray hair, no hair? Uh, will we make it? Well, when we get over 50, you pretty much think your course is set, but the truth is a significant number of us will not make it either. It is a rare thing to be a Simeon or an Anna and to finish life faithfully. You know, when I look at my life, I, uh, thankful to the Lord, 
uh, can look at a few things that I think are wins. A few things, the Lord is blessed, and, and I would count those as wins. And then I look at my life, and there are a few things, maybe more than a few things, that I would count as losses, as failures. But more and more, what I want, what I need, the one thing in my life I desire is that I would just finish like Simeon and Anna. It's not about the wins and the losses anymore. It's about the finish. I want to finish faithful. At my funeral, I don't know if people will say I was a good preacher or a bad preacher, a good leader or a bad leader, a good dad or a bad dad, a good provider or a bad provider. And that's okay. As long as somebody will stand up and say that I finished faithful. In my advanced years, I no longer desire to be a Peter or a Paul or a Timothy or a James. I just want to be a Simeon. I just want to get to the end and be delighted over the Lord and finish faithful. There's a Bible word for this. The word is perseverance. Perseverance. That's, that's how the Bible would refer to uh, Simeon and Anna, they were people of perseverance. Uh, so I want to take a few moments, uh, just as we are on the precipice, as I said, of this new year, and I want to talk about perseverance. I want to give you just three quick facts about perseverance. I want to tell you of the necessity of perseverance, the possibility for perseverance, and then finally the danger to perseverance, and then we'll try to wrap these different pieces up together. First of all, the necessity of perseverance. You know, the Bible talks about those who think that they are children of God, but in fact are not children of God. The Bible talks about that, especially in the New Testament, over and over and over. The Bible uses the word deceived. There are so many people deceived about being in the family of God, being a child of God, sins forgiven. So many people think that they are in God's family, but they in fact are not in God's family. So what is the number one way, according to scripture, to tell if you're in God's family? What is the number one most often mentioned sign that our faith is genuine, that it's authentic? The number one thing is perseverance. Perseverance. Those whose faith is genuine, those people will persevere to the end. Now let me give you a statement that'll bristle with some people, uh, but I'll give you the statement and then I'll give you maybe two or three Bible verses just for you to chew on if this doesn't sit well. But here's the statement. If a person does not persevere in faithfulness to the end, then that person is not a child of God. And that person was not ever a child of God. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. You ever heard that before? Let me give you just a couple of verses, maybe three verses. 
I'll give you two and then I'll take some time on the third one. Uh, just in case that, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples. If, if you continue, continue, persevere in my word, you are really my disciples. I'll read Hebrews 3.14. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start. He says, says we have become participants in Christ if and only if we hold to the end the reality that we had at the start. Let me give you one more verse and I'll spend a moment or two on this. 1 John 2.19 it speaks of those who have left the faith, those who were once faithful, those who have their name on a membership roll somewhere, but they have wandered from the faith. Listen to what it says. They went out from us, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. They left, but they but they never were really a part of us to start with. It seemed like they were. It maybe seemed like they were to us, and maybe it seemed like they were to them. But it says they went out from us, but they were not ever really a part of us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. If they had been a genuine believer, if their faith was true, then it would have remained. We're not talking about leaving a church and going to another church. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about people who don't finish faithful. But it goes on. Let me read from the beginning because I don't want you to be confused. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. And then listen to the last part of the verse. However, they went out so that, here's the reason, that they abandoned their faith. They went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. See, when we talk about perseverance, we need to begin by understanding the necessity of perseverance. Perseverance is an essential key, an essential key to mark the genuineness of our faith. The second thing about perseverance is the possibility, the possibility for perseverance. Now, I've got good news. Perseverance is ultimately not our responsibility. If we have surrendered to Christ, if we have trusted in, in who Christ is and what he's done for us on the cross, if we have trusted that Christ's death for us pays the penalty for our sins, and I trust that and that alone, and I make Jesus the Lord of my life, I surrender to him. The Bible says I'm adopted into the family of God. That never changes. When we adopted our daughter, and we don't have the character of God, my wife and I, we don't have the character of Christ, but, but when we adopted our daughter, it was a forever adoption. It wasn't, you're adopted, Ray, as long as you keep the rules. You're adopted as long as your room is clean. You're adopted as long as you're nice to your parents. No, you're a part of our family. 
Now, God, who is a billion times more faithful than I am and a billion times more faithful than my wife, when he adopts a child, when he adopts into his family, that's a permanent adoption. And here's what Philippians 1.6 says. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion into the day of Christ. So some of this is uh, not going to fit together just like a puzzle in our finite minds. But perseverance is the sign that our faith is genuine. But perseverance is also the activity and the responsibility of God. God will see that his children persevere. What God has started to do in me, God will finish. Now here's the encouragement. All of us can be a Simeon. All of us can be an Anna. You know, we've sinned, every one of us, we've sinned in different ways. Sometimes with those sins come consequences, right? Sometimes you can't just undo it. Sometimes you can't fix it. And some of us carry some of those consequences. All of us carry the consequences of sin forward into our lives. And, and there are sometimes that the consequences are our sins prevent us from, from enjoying some things. I, I think about Moses who sinned as he led God's people to the promised land. And as they got to the promised land, God says, Moses, there it is. But because you sinned, you can't go forward. You can't go into the promised land. It's one of the most heartbreaking passages in all the Bible. So listen, some people have messed up. Some of us have messed up worse than others have messed up. And because we've messed up, there's some things perhaps we can't do or be or enjoy. But there's not a person here who can't finish faithful. And in the end, that's all that matters. Now, don't quote me on this. Don't YouTube this. I mean, don't Twitter this and people get this wrong. But, you know, Anna, she's been maybe a widow for 84 years. You ever wondered why she was a widow? Maybe she got mad at her husband and just killed him. <laughs> now, there's no Bible evidence for that. Um, what I'm saying is, that's not a part of the equation when we come to Luke chapter 2. What matters in Luke chapter 2, what is beautiful about Luke chapter 2, is not that Anna has lived an entire life of wonderful devotion. Maybe she did. But what matters in Luke chapter 2 is that she finished faithful. And there's not a person here who can't finish faithful. We have to put our trust in God. This isn't just to roll up your sleeves and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Only the Lord can, can help you finish faithful. But if you'll trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you'll make him the Lord, the master of your life, you'll finish faithful. The third, the third thing about pers perseverance I want you to see is the danger the danger to perseverance. 
So this is the part that in our finite minds doesn't always fit together, but the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus guarantees the perseverance of true Christians. True Christians will persevere until the end. But the Bible also says that we embrace that guarantee by the commitments we make and the endurance and the actions that we engage in. Listen to some verses. Philippians 2.12, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, I discipline my own body to bring it under strict control so that I won't be disqualified in the end. 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians 3.13 says, don't grow weary in doing good, which means don't quit. So can I share with you the danger of of perseverance? If you're not going to persevere, what's going on? What's going to be the, the, the cause, the, 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 the enemy of your perseverance? I think uh, the answer is your trajectory. It's interesting, sometimes as a pastor, you get a front row seat to people's failure. And I see both scripturally and in life that the greatest enemy of perseverance is trajectory. Now let me explain what I mean. Trajectory is the path of a moving object. And so if a, if a missile is flying through the air, the path that missile takes is its trajectory. If a bullet is flying, if an airplane is, is navigating somewhere, it has a trajectory. That's the path that it is on. Perseverance is a trajectory issue, not a decision issue. See, it's easy for people to make a decision today, and this could be the point of my sermon. Let's make a decision today. We're all going to finish well. We're all going to finish well. Raise your hand if you want to finish well. But the problem is, all the people who don't finish well, they all made a decision to finish well at some point in life. It's not just a decision, it's a trajectory. Now, let me tell you one more thing about trajectory, and then I'll show you how this works spiritually in our lives. Time amplifies errors in trajectories. You know, if, um, if an airplane is flying and it's one degree off in its trajectory, if it's only flying 20 miles, uh, that's not a problem. It's going to get to the airport and be 300 yards off target. It can quickly... Uh, reassess and still land on the runway. But if that same airplane flies 5,000 miles, when it gets to its destination, it's going to be 90 miles off course. Okay, over time, trajectory makes a bigger and bigger difference. If you're shooting a gun at a target from 40 feet away and you're one degree off, you're still going to hit the target. But if you're shooting a sniper shot at 1,000 yards, you're going to miss the target by 50 feet. The, f- the longer we go, the greater difference trajectory makes. The danger to perseverance is not so much that we make a bad decision in the big things, but it is that we will have the wrong trajectory in small things, and over time, that will derail our perseverance. Can I give you a list of sins, I think, that kill our perseverance over time? Over time, not being faithful in church attendance. 
Think it's not going to hurt to miss a week or two or three or to come half the time for a year. But see, that's a trajectory thing. You're one degree off. And it may not make a difference in a year or two years or three. But that trajectory over time is going to cause a problem. Something else that will kill your perseverance, the trajectory of your perseverance, is your browsing history. So somebody pulls up something on the internet and, and they look at it and they shouldn't and it's a sin. But they think there's no consequence to that. But, but if it's a sin today and tomorrow and the next day and two years from now and three years from now, you see, it, it, it's messing up our trajectory. So th- th- there will be a day when we'll be completely off course, more than we can imagine. Prayerlessness. If you don't pray tomorrow, that's not the end of your faith. But prayerlessness over time, the trajectory that that creates in our lives will get us way off course. We'll miss the destination. Lack of personal Bible study at home, spending time reading the Bible. A lack of giving faithfully to to the work of of the Lord, to the church. Uh, A a, a failure to stretch yourself and serve. Those things. Those things that can seem so insignificant, if you just look at the one thing in our lives over a period of time, over months and years and decades even, that creates a trajectory that keeps us from finishing well. The half of church members at First Baptist Church that have lost their faith, at least in some sense, For most, it wasn't some big decision, some bad decision. It was a trajectory that led them away from the Lord. It's easy to dismiss those kinds of things as insignificant or temporary. But the truth is, those are the things that determine our spiritual trajectory. Now, let me wrap this up and and talk to you about the next step. So... When we look at Simeon and Anna, that's the target. At the end of your life, your family is going to meet with a preacher to talk about your funeral. And on that day, no one's going to care how many widgets you made or how many fights you won. The only thing that's really going to matter on that day is did you finish faithful? Now, this is New Year's Eve. This is the day that people make, in America anyway, commitments and resolutions more than any other day. So here's the resolution I'm asking you to make. Start finishing well. Start finishing well. You don't have to read the entire Bible once a month. You don't have to go to 90% giving of your income by the Second week of February. No, what we're talking about is changing our trajectory. Start finishing well. When I was learning to drive a car, I, and this will, I'll give away my age here, but I, I, would, I would line up the hood ornament, and you can ask your grandparents what that is. I would line up the hood ornament with the line on the right side of the road. And so from my eyeball to the hood ornament to that line. And I focused on that and I just tried to keep that on the line as I drove the car. That's a terrible way to drive. I was jerking back and forth trying to keep that perfectly lined up. 
always making course corrections. I mean, I would course correct once every, every three seconds. But somebody taught me, no, you need to look up and look at where you're going. Not just where you are, but where you're going. And then you can make gentle corrections so that the trajectory of that car will keep you on, on course. Here's what I want to ask you, church. Let's look up to where we're going. Let's look up to where our browsing history is taking us. Let's look up to where our commitment to being involved in church, let's look to where that's taking us. Let's look up to where our daily devotions and our quiet time, not where it is today. Don't try to line it up to, but, but where is that going to take you in a year or two years? And let's make some adjustments to our trajectory. I'll give you some practical how-tos. We need to be faithful to worship and to small groups in our church. We have a men's ministry here and a women's ministry here, second to none. You need to be faithful in worship. You need to be faithful in Sunday school or some other small group Bible study here. But if you're a man or woman and you want to take that next step, you need to reach out to us this week, to our men's minister, to our women's minister, and say, hey, help me get plugged into a small group. Help me get plugged into one of these groups of men who get together and pray for each other every week. Or into one of these groups of women who, who mentor one another. And, and, and let's make sure that we fix some trajectories in our lives. Be faithful to our daily Bible study and prayer. We talked a little earlier in the services about how we can do that. And then let's just be faithful to holy living. For most of us, if we fail to get to where Anna and Simeon got, it won't be because of some terrible decision. It'll be because our trajectory was off. Now, I, I plan to say something, and I, and I, I go back and forth because I, I, I'm afraid this will come across as very arrogant, and I don't mean it to. And I could be, I am, I am a sinner through and through. I, I'm as susceptible to sin as anybody else. But I'm also honest about my life. I try to be honest to myself. Church, it's not likely I'm going to rob a convenience store with a gun, Okay. I just don't think at this stage in life, that's something I will ever be tempted to do. Okay. I, I, I think at this stage in life, um, I don't think I'm going to lose my cool in an argument at the grocery store, at the grocery store and, uh, beat somebody over the head with a ketchup bottle. Okay. I just, it, I mean, I could commit any sin, I suppose. At this stage in life, honestly, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any chance I'm going to have an affair on my wife. Um, but I could easily be off a few degrees and neglect my daily devotions and my prayer time. I could neglect to be faithful to the Lord in some ways that others might consider small or insignificant. I could get distracted on the internet. I could fail to be engaged with other men who are praying for me and I'm praying for them. And I could get my trajectory off just enough that a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now, I'm upside down in a ditch, spiritually, 
and I never make it to my one goal in life today that you will say at my funeral, he was Simeon. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed today. Father in heaven, we love you. We care, for, we care for our relationship with you. We want it to be all that it can be. So Father, help us to persevere. Show us where our trajectory is wrong before it is too far wrong. And help us to finish well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond.